Well, good morning, everyone. You all have a good Thanksgiving? Good, good. We uh, had uh, two of our uh, families come into town, uh, our daughter from North Carolina and her family, and um, our, uh, well, three families, actually, our uh, son from Chicago and his family, and my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, Karen, is here with us. And our one son from North Carolina, they decided to do Thanksgiving at home this year. But um, we went to, on Thanksgiving morning, to an event downtown. I, do they call it like the turkey trot? Is that what it's called? or The turkey run. And um, of course, I do it by walking. I don't run, but Wilson ran and uh, Phoebe, our granddaughter, ran. And Everest, my uh, son-in-law, ran. But um, we're going through this whole thing with um, the, the families and the, you know, the baby buggies and everything. And um, somehow I got behind. I don't know how I got distracted. And, and I'm looking for where are they? Where are they? And then I saw the buggy and I thought, okay, there they are. So I walk up behind the buggy, get ready to push the buggy. As soon as my daughter-in-law puts the kids in it, and as my granddaughter's crawling into the seat, a man came from the left. In his 30s, he, he looked like a normal person, but he's walking up talking. And I realize he's talking to my granddaughter. And he's bending down like this with his hands out. And this all happens like in half a second. They're really, really fast. And I'm thinking, what the heck? What is this guy doing? Is this some creep or what? What do I need to do right now to protect my family? And then I looked at the little girl and I thought, that's not my granddaughter. <laughs> so that prompted me to look to my left and that's not my daughter-in-law. And then I, so I just kind of like pulled my baseball cap down, you know, pulled my collar up and backed up. No, I didn't actually do that, but I did just back away. And as I'm walking around them, I thought, wow, I thought that guy was a creep. And really, I'm the creep. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what they were thinking. Well, we're in this series on identity, and somehow this applies, this illustration. I'm not sure exactly how. But... Uh, for one thing, when I thought to myself, I'm the creep, I know I'm not a creep. So I, I did not take that to heart. I did not take the external and apply it to my identity, to my nature, my character. But more than that, I, I was thinking this. You really do have to know who you are. You have to know what family you're part of and who you're walking with. Because, and you've got to pay attention to that. You've got to know it and pay attention to it. Otherwise, uh, you get confused, you end up going the wrong directions, you end up doing something you know, kind of crazy or stupid, however you want to put it. But this whole series that we've been, been uh, on is uh, on the, the idea of what is your identity and do you know your identity and are you walking in the identity that Christ has given you? And uh, we started it uh, four weeks ago, this is the fourth message um, first week, I gave kind of a theological basis for the whole thing. Second week, Nick Hunter did a magnificent job talking about mind renewal. And yeah, wasn't that a good message? Go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it. Maybe you want to listen to it again. But it, the idea is we, we, we receive a new heart from Jesus. 
but he doesn't like give us a brain transplant. We still have to rewire the way we think and the assumptions we make about life. That's called renewing the mind according to the Bible. And so Nick did, does a whole message on that. Then last week, Jamie gave an incredible message on how your identity impacts relationships. And so I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that also if you haven't, or um, go on YouTube or Facebook and actually watch the messages. It would be even more helpful. When we're talking about this, I've used primarily three terms, identity, nature, and heart to describe what happens and what, what we're talking about. And I, and I want to I define those a little more clearly. Heart and nature are used pretty much synonymously when we're talking about this, this whole issue of the change that takes place in a person when they receive Christ. And so heart or nature is the, the, the thing that describes who you are at the core of your being. Remember, I, I shared a few weeks ago that a wolf doesn't have to learn to eat sheep. It's part of their nature to go after sheep and other animals, deer and stuff like that. It's just part of who they are. It's part of their nature. And so the nature or the heart, and in the Bible, God talks about the heart and the nature almost interchangeably in many, many places. Now, when we talk about identity, we're talking about the term that is used to name you in a way that is consistent with what your new heart is, what your character is. And so when we talk about identity, we're talking about an identity that you have that is based upon the new heart that Jesus has given you, this new thing that he has done in you. And that new identity is children of God. We are children of God. And under, under that is this whole idea, I have a new nature, I have a new heart. And that's because of God's work in me to make me a child of his, a child of God. Now, this whole concept is the key to long-term, consistent spiritual growth in our lives. It is understanding who we are, believing who we are, having that become our like default thought pattern. Our default thinking pattern is I'm a child of God and then understanding what that means and applying that to my life. That's how I grow. So the growth isn't from the outside in. Spiritual growth, don't confuse spiritual growth with just behavioral change. You know, there are a lot of ways in our, in our world today to change your behavior. And just about everybody wants to has some behavior they want to change. And there are psychological techniques and methodologies that will enable you to actually change your outward behavior, but it doesn't change your heart. What Jesus is after is giving us new hearts so that out of those new hearts, our outward behavior changes. Now, I want to stop right there and say this. If someone's an addict and they go to a kind of like a self-help type of a system and, and where, where the outward change, the, you know, the psychological approach to outward change helps them to break their addiction, then I'm all for that. I'm happy for them. It's got to be much better life for them, for their family, 
for their community, for their kids, the whole deal. So I don't want to put that down. But I want to say what God wants for us is something more than that, more than just outward change. He wants to change our hearts so that we don't just act like new people, but we are new people. Okay, so that's the whole thrust of this. And it's the whole thrust of the, the idea that we have a new identity, that, uh, that, it, that we have, because of the power of God, have been changed. It's not just my own, it's not just me. God changed my heart. And then he gives me the power of the Holy Spirit to change my mind so that my mind becomes aligned with my heart. And I start thinking about myself and about what God's done in me about what God's called me to in life the same way he thinks about it because he's changed. He's the one who changed my heart through his power and gave me this new heart. So, Apostle Peter's a great illustration of this. <clears throat> you, you know, the night that uh, Jesus had the Last Supper with the apostles and Jesus is realizing that he's going to be arrested that night and crucified the next day and he tells them all and they're all, you know, heartbroken but uh, the one thing he told them was, one of you is going to betray me. And they all start saying, never, you know, won't be me. Never, never me. And then Peter speaks up, and he throws the whole group under the bus. Do you know what Peter said? He said, they might all betray you. I never will. I never will. And this, I mean, this is, this is just human bravado. It was just too good. It was like, like what a, a man would say to another guy that's his buddy. And, and he just wants to assure him, you know, you and me, we know, we know. They might betray you. I never will betray you. Jesus responds to him and says, oh, Peter, you have no idea. Tonight, you're going to betray me three times. And of course, Peter vehemently denies that. But then you know later that night when this little servant girl says, hey, you're one of them. You're one of his apostles. I remember seeing you with him. Peter that's like the third time he's been identified as an apostle. And Peter denies that he even knows Jesus and curses in the process. And at that very moment, Jesus was being led out of the high priest's home to be taken to see Herod. And it says that Jesus heard Peter and he turned and looked at Peter. So their eyes met. And Peter, it says, then went out and wept bitterly. Now, can you imagine what he's saying to himself now? You know, what an idiot, what a fool. You know, how, how could I have possibly done this? You know, I, I am the betrayer. You know, I am the one who betrayed Jesus. And he goes off and spends, I'm sure, days in just deep remorse and regret and self-recrimination. But you look then at Peter in the book of Acts, those in, uh, opening chapters... And Peter is the guy that stands up and says to the, the ones that actually, you know, to the whole crowd, but especially to the religious leaders, he says, you're the ones that killed him. He says, Jesus was the son of God, and God raised him to the dead, but you're the ones that killed him. And he says this without bravado. He says this without anxiety, without anger, without puffing himself up. There's a calmness about his spirit now when he says this. And then later, again, he's arrested, and they bring him before the authorities. And the authorities tell him, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter says to them, 
Realize this is a Galilean fisherman. And he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day who could have him stoned to death in a moment's notice. And he says to them, who would you rather have me obey, God or man? God or you? And boy, there's some strong, strong uh, recriminations in that statement. In other words, you are not bidding, you're not doing God's bidding. And I'm going to obey God instead of you. So you look at that and you start thinking, well, wait a second, is this the same guy? Are these two different people? And the simple answer to that is yes. They're two different people. It's not the same guy. Because in the interim, the Holy Spirit came on him and filled him and fulfilled what we refer to as the promise of the Father. There were promises in the Old Testament that God would change us. And that you see the first one in Jeremiah 31, 33. says this. God says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. He says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. He says, I'm going to, you know, the the way, and really the law, all the law does is describe the way God created us to live. It's not like some random rules that God made up to try to get control of fallen humanity. There might be a few of those in there, but almost entirely it is, here's how you were designed to live. Live this way. And so he says, I'm going to put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. And one of the alpha illustrations of this Nikki Gumbel gives is this, that food in a backpack when you're going on a hike, that food in your backpack is a burden. That's like the law in the Old Testament. But when you stop... You take that food out of the backpack and you consume it. You take it into yourself. Then what previously was a burden becomes your life. It becomes energy. It becomes something that enables you to keep going on. And so God's saying, here, I'm going to take this law, which admittedly the Bible says was a burden that no one can fulfill. And he says, I'm going to put it inside you. It's going to become part of you, so it's going to give you life, not take life away from you. And uh, this minds are right on their hearts. And in Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually talks about the new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And listen to this. I will remove from you your stony heart, and I'll give you a soft heart, a tender heart. And I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful, move you to be careful to keep my laws. So he says here, first of all, that old stony heart, the heart we're all born with because of Adam and Eve's sin, he says, I'm going to remove that. I'm taking it out. He doesn't say I'm going to take out most of it. He doesn't say I'm going to take out half of it. I'm going to take it out. And so the old nature is removed. That old, that old heart is removed. And he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. It's going to be soft and tender towards me. It's, it's going to be a living heart I'm going to give to you. And then he says, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. So that new heart is the new nature. That's what my new identity derives from. But I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And so the Holy Spirit now can come and dwell in us because we've had that old hard heart taken out. 
And that's why Jesus said to his apostles, he said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. So that's happened to Peter. It's happened to every one of us who has opened our heart to Christ and believed in Christ. That means you have a new heart. God took out the hard heart, gave you a new heart. That's why you desire God. That's why you wrestle with things and habits that you know don't honor God. It's because I have a new heart. And so he put that new heart in us, and the Holy Spirit is in us to enable us to renew our minds, to empower us. One person said the Holy Spirit is in us for us, to change us. The Holy Spirit comes upon us to anoint us for others so that we use the gifts that he's given us to you know, outwardly focus. Now, Jesus, Jesus followed this up and summarized it in John 3.3 3, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and literally it means born from above, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Adam and Eve, they were born from above. They were created righteous, but their righteousness was provisional. It was based upon them going through a test of obeying him, and they failed the test of obedience, and so they fell, and, and they experienced spiritual death. Then they passed that on to all of us so that we were all born as Adam and Eve with fallen natures. But Jesus is saying here that when you are born again, you're born from above, you receive a new righteous nature, which Paul backs up in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and in Christ is the way Paul talks about being in relationship with Christ. That's how he talks about being a Christian. You are in Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful theological term that we ought to take time someday, not today, to really delve into more, but in Christ, he says, the new creation has come. The old has gone, behold, the new is here. And literally in the Greek text, it just says this, anyone in Christ, and then like, like an exclamation almost, new creation. It doesn't say the new creation has come. You, you have to add something there to make it make sense in English, but anyone in Christ, it's new creation. You're in Christ. Oh, new creation. You're new. And then he goes on, and he, uh, he, he, he uses this word new, but um, it's a powerful word. It doesn't mean new in the sense of new to me. You know, like I can say, hey, I got a new car. Oh, yeah, what'd you get? I got a 2015 Toyota. Okay, but that's great. It's a new car to me. It's not a brand new car. But this word even goes beyond getting a 2024 Toyota or Chevy or Ford or whatever it might be. It goes beyond even that because then you would say, oh yeah, right off the factory line, that means it is new. This word means new in the sense of something that hasn't been seen before. New in the sense of something that is not the norm. It might even look something like the old, but it's a new thing. It would be as if someone said, hey, did you hear the new car GM came out with? It doesn't have tires. It just hovers 12 inches off the ground. Don't know how they do it, but it hovers 12 inches off the ground. And there's not a combustion engine in it. There's no fire, no explosion, no exhaust fumes or anything like that. Somehow they figure out a way to make this whole thing run on water. Okay? That would be what the word new means here. It's something no one has heard of before. 
And so it's still a car, but it's a new car, a new type of car. And so when he says we become new people, it's like we become something new the world hasn't seen before. And we become people literally of the future. We become people of the future. Because that coming kingdom, the kingdom's out there. It's, it is, it, it's coming. But what Jesus did was he released it to us today so that we get to experience the kingdom. We don't experience it fully today. But we experience the kingdom in this respect of being fully changed today. We get new hearts today. We become a new type of person. And then... In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul uh, follows that up by saying, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so Jesus comes. He has, he has a whole heart. He's not born with a sin nature. He lives a perfect life, so he maintains righteousness throughout his entire life. He's right. He lives exactly the way God designed him to live. That's what righteous means. It means the way God intended it to be. It's not so much a religious term as it is just a practical term. It's just the way things are supposed, the way God designed life to be. He lived that life, and all the while we're living lives that are born out of a fallen nature the way life was not supposed to be. That's what the Bible calls sin. And so on the cross, Jesus says, okay, I'll take all that sin. I'll take care of it. All that sin from all the world, from all time came on him. And what, what do we get in exchange for that? We get his righteousness. And this righteousness isn't just like attributed to us like a legal sense, like we all know you did this, but on a technicality, you're going to get off. You follow what I'm saying? We all know you killed that person, but because the police didn't advise you of your Miranda rights, in the books, it's going to say innocent, even though we all know you're guilty. That's one way people take this. I don't think that's the way to take it. The truth is, he has actually made us righteous. That's what this verse is saying. It's a very strong... We get his righteousness, we become righteous. That's what it means when it says we have a new heart. He gives us a new heart. So it's wrong to say, it is wrong to say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's, that's not a right statement. It would be okay to say this, I was a sinner by nature, but Jesus forgave me and changed me. He forgave me and changed me. I had a friend in Michigan named D. Sanford. D. was a great guy. He was part of our church there. Holy Spirit-filled guy, even though the church was not, um, you know, like our church here today uh, regarding the Holy Spirit. But he was a great guy. <clears throat> he had been in struggle with alcoholism at one point in his life. He came to know Jesus, got freed from that. But he would still go to AA meetings once in a while. And you know how you're supposed to start off in an AA meeting? Okay, I'm D and I'm an alcoholic. He said he'd stand up and he would say, hi, I'm D and I used to be an alcoholic, but Jesus changed me. <laughs> and uh, and, and I'm, not, I'm not slamming the AA here. As I said earlier, if that helps someone get sober, that's going to bless that family line for generations to come. And I'm all for that. But uh, what, what they ended up doing was kicking D out of AA because he would not, 
maintained that he was an alcoholic. <laughs> so it's okay to say, I think, it's okay to say, I once was a sinner. I once had a, a, a sin nature, and that's why I sinned. Now that sin nature has been done away with. And so it begs that question, why do I still sin? And if you listen to Nick's message you heard, it's because of my old belief systems. My old belief systems. And, the, and, and I'm still locked into things that aren't true. And I, when I act upon things that aren't true, that's breaking with God's righteousness. And it is what the Bible calls sin. And if you remember, I stated this too in my first message, that Adam and Eve had the capacity to consider sin and actually sin while they were still righteous. Okay, think about that. They weren't unrighteous until they actually took that fruit off the tree and ingested it into their systems. That's when they became unrighteous. But they went through the whole process leading up to that as fully righteous people because, uh, as, as it says, Eve saw the fruit... And she said, it looks good to eat. I don't know why God told us not to eat this, why it's going to kill us. It looks good to me. And she remembered what Satan had told her, the lie Satan gave her, that God was holding out on her, that God wasn't really for her welfare. And based upon those wrong beliefs, prior, while she was still righteous, prior to actually disobeying God. And so you can be totally righteous, and you just have the wrong thought patterns. And that's why renewing the mind is so crucial uh, to the whole process of spiritual growth. And understanding who you are is crucial to the process of mind renewal. Now, I want to show you this. There are a few different ways to look at this. Well, a couple. Anyway, the way I used to look at it. Uh, let's put up diagram one, okay? All right, this is me before Jesus. This is my heart, my nature, my, my inner being. And it's dark. It's a fallen nature. That's why we, I think it's, it's green, dark green. I think that's, is that what it is? Is it green? Okay. Well, at any rate, it's a dark heart. And it's a fallen heart. And it doesn't desire God and all the other stuff the Bible says about the fallen heart. Okay? So I come to the point that I accept Jesus and what happens? Diagram two comes into play. I get a new heart. God takes out that old hard, stony heart and puts in a new heart. And this is what we're teaching you, that you get a new heart. But there's another way that some people either directly look at it or, or by implication, this is the effect of their, their thinking and their theology. Let's go to slide three. When you accept Jesus, Jesus comes in and pushes about half that dark heart out but the other half stays there. Okay, so you've heard the illustration that you have, it's like you have a white dog in you and a black dog in you, and whichever one you feed is the one that's gonna win the battle. Okay, that leads to this type of thinking. I'm not sure it directly is related to it, but it leads to this type of thinking. And what that leaves you with is when you're tempted, when you face a temptation or a struggle, there's a tendency to have an unstable base. And why, you know, why do I keep desiring this so much? Why do I want this so much? Why do I keep falling into this so much? You know, there I go again. I will, I'll never get free. And there are implications to this. Just leave this, leave this up for a moment, okay? Implications that are very negative 
And I, I want to reveal, I want to review them with you. Um, probably a whole lot more than I'm going to talk about today. But first implication is this. It will impact my relationship with God. So just get a picture of that divided heart in your mind and let's go to the next point. It will impact my relationship with God. In some way it will. It could be that it's going to be harder for me to feel secure in my relationship with God because I know if I believe that black heart, white heart thing, then I also have to think, well, there's a part of me that God just really doesn't like. And and that that can create an insecurity in our sense of, um, of, of relationship and security with God. And let me say this, there's a difference between me sinning and saying, yeah, God didn't like what I, God did not like the way I just spoke to my wife. That's different than saying, God doesn't like something about me and in my identity, in my character. And so, Jesus wants us to be secure in our relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus said this in John 10, 27 to 29. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus says, well, wait a second. You are secure in the Father's hand. And anything that would, that would, uh, that would undermine that sense of security is going to lead us into a wrong thought pattern and a wrong belief system. And so it could influence just my relationship as far as the security of my relationship with God. It could influence my, the sense of intimacy with God. Re- very closely related here, but intimacy is, uh, the, the first point could be just, you know, God's never going to disown me. Okay, this point is, does God really love me? Does God really want to be close to me? Will God really let me know his heart? Intimacy with God. And th- this is just based on you know, what we would call shame. And it's really important to recognize that guilt is a real thing. It's culpability. If I did something wrong, then I'm culpable for it. I'm accountable for it. And, but oftentimes, and most of the time, I also experience the emotion of guilt. Okay, shame is different than guilt. Shame is the sense, not that I've done something wrong. Shame is this nagging notion that there's something wrong with me. Something wrong with me. And so why would God want to be close to me when there's stuff in me, not just stuff I do, but stuff in me that is offensive to him? And so, but Jesus said this. He said, in John 16, 26, he's, he's convincing us. Here, it's all about prayer in this context. I just brought the last phrase, but he's saying, look, I know you've all come to me to ask the Father for stuff for you, but from now on, you don't have to come to me. You can go directly to the Father to, to pray to him because the Father himself loves you. Okay, he, want, he loves you and he wants close, intimate relationship. John 17, 23 says this, Jesus is praying, and and he says, I am in them, and you are in me, and so it's kind of like, Jesus is in me, 
And Jesus is saying, Jesus, it's Jesus speaking, and he's saying, I am in them, and Father, you are in me. So the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in me. That means the Father and Jesus are in me. That means our lives are all tangled up together and, and just intertwined. And that speaks to the intimacy that God wants with us. And he says this, he says, I in them and you in me, so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them. And this is a phrase that is mind-blowing, just as you loved me. So when you come into Christ and he comes into you, then God the Father looks at you. You have a Jesus heart. Now, that's another way to say it. He takes out that stony heart and he puts a Jesus heart into us. And the Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus. Now, the second thing, uh, this, this half black, half white, half good, half bad heart can do is impact my relationships with others. I'm going to have a cynical view towards others because I'm going to think, well, at their heart, they're unstable. Maybe they really, really mean this, what they just said. But if, if I realize that, no, they have a new heart, then in spite of the fact that there's junk floating around in their life because of the wrong things they believe, I realize all I have to do is maneuver around that junk, you know, kind of like a spaceship going, you know, going between the asteroids. I just have to maneuver around that and around that and around that and get to their heart. If I can touch their heart, because I know they have a new heart. And if I can bypass all the junk out here and get to their heart, then we're going to have, we're going to have the beginning of a new relationship. But if I believe that half that heart's dark and half that heart is white, I might hit the wrong part of their heart. And, and it creates a cynical attitude towards others. But uh, take in Jamie's message on this last week. She, she gave a great message on this whole thing. And there's a way that God wants us to regard others. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 16. He said, Paul said, you know, from now on, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. But he says this, he says, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He said, actually, he said, before I had my eyes open and I saw the truth, I regarded Christ from a worldly point of view, and I was wrong. So he said, don't look at others from a worldly point of view. You, if the person's born again, you know they have a new heart. And if they're not, you know they have the potential to have a new heart. And so view them that way. And it gives us a totally new way to look at the lives of others. And to, uh, and to engage with them and opens up relationship. Third thing is this. I, I believe the instability of that picture of the half the white heart and half the dark heart. Would you put that back up again for just a moment? Oh, there you go. Okay, the, the instability, that's like standing on, on something that it, you know, this side moves independently of this side. And, and I don't know, you know, how, you, you just, you, you don't have any balance. And so spiritually and emotionally, you're imbalanced. And that's going to impact your confidence as a child of God. And you're not going to know what the heck's going on. You're just going to stumble into things because of the instability. So you can struggle with anxiety because of that. But the Bible says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear or anxiety. 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Another thing that can happen is, and more importantly, I think, or maybe equally importantly, you can struggle with resisting temptation because you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, then how, what basis do you have? It's, it's, it's unstable. And so go to that next verse, John 1.12, okay? John 1.12 says this, Jesus said, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God by believing in his name or to those who believe in his name. And so he gives us a new heart that is righteous and then he gives me the power of the Holy Spirit and authority here to change the way I think so that I can actually take what's on the inside and begin to live it out in my life as a follower of Jesus. And, and this, this is a powerful statement. Um, Steve Backlund says, we get saved by believing in Jesus. We grow spiritually by believing like Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who his father was. He knew what his mission was. And so when we learn to believe like Jesus believed, then what's, what the new nature we have begins to take over the outward, the outward uh, behavior and actions, and we're seen then as that one that knows him. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. How many of you have memorized that? Anybody here? Come on. I know Lori has. Yeah. And Luke, Luke's a navigator. Lori's a navigator. Anybody here from Disciple by the Navs? Yeah, okay, Jim back there. I know many of you do. But, but it um, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It says, for it's the power of God unto salvation to those that believe. And then he goes on to say, uh, make a statement that ends with this, from faith to faith. The power of God from faith to faith. And that means you start out by faith, you enter it by faith, and then you go on by faith. Your faith brings you into Jesus, and once that faith is activated with that new heart, then it is having your mind renewed by believing the right things that moves you ahead in Jesus. And so I, I want to end with this. When I first encountered the, this truth, um, it was back in the 80s, uh, 1980s. Is that right? Yeah, the 1980s. And, um, and here's what I would do. Temptation comes along. Can you put that last, that last paragraph up on the uh, screen, please? Now, I want to say this. This is not a formula. It's not a rote thing. It's just my, it's what I deduce from understanding the new nature and how to resist temptation and you can take it and put it in your own words and figure out how to assert this same thing. But I start off asserting this. This temptation, whether it's to hold a grudge against someone, to lust over something, to covet, to uh, be angry, or, or whatever it might be, this temptation doesn't come from the real me. The real me is righteous. It's not coming from the real me, deep in my heart. It's not coming from the center of who I am. It's coming because of the wrong beliefs I have. So I affirm that first. And then, then I would state this. I would say, in my new core identity, my, or my new nature, I desire the ways of God. That's, a, that's an assertion of truth. 
I affirm that I am a new creation. That's another assertion of truth. And that I have every spiritual blessing, including the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Assertions of truth. I'm, I'm establishing truth. in my, I'm reminding myself of truth when I'm doing this. And I'm also reminding the enemy of all of this. Then, then I come to this point, so I'd say, so I'm saying no to this temptation because I'm a new creation. I have a new heart. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I can choose to say no to this. I don't, I, I, it's not like half good, half bad. I'm not sure which one's at play right now. I'm not sure if I can really say no to this or not. It is, I'm totally new. I have a new identity, new heart. I can say no to this, and I'm doing it right now. I'm saying no to this temptation, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and with the authority I have as a new creation, I reject it. Okay, I have found this type of this type of uh, affirmation of truth at the moment of temptation to be incredibly powerful, to actually release the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, and to give great freedom in different areas that were areas of struggle before because I was never quite sure if it was really me or if it was the devil or, or what, you know. And, and, but when you realize you're new, then you just affirm that. And it's kind of like this. If... Um, if the police showed up at your house, and they, and they, they come to um, Tori's house. I just picked the most obvious, you know, the usual suspects, as they put it. They come to Tori's house, and they say, you're under arrest, John Smith, we're taking you in for all the banks you've robbed, John Smith. What would Tory say? I mean, he wouldn't fight them, but he would say, that if you fight, you know, you're going you're gonna to end, and they're all going to say, oh, too bad. Didn't really mean to shoot that guy, but too bad for him. You're not going to fight. Use your own power. What you're going to do is you're going to say, wait a second. Did you say George Smith? That's my neighbor. That's not me. Just look, please. My wallet's right there. Open it up and look at look at who I am. Look at my look at my look at my real identity, and you'll recognize you got the wrong house. You have the wrong man. Does that make sense? So that's that's what affirming all of this actually does. Thank you, Tori, for your help in this illustration. <laughs> I hope that makes sense to you. I hope you go away thinking about this. I hope you take, especially this last phrase, take a picture of that. That last. Would you put that back up for anybody that wants to take a picture of it to do that? And, and just look, you could, you could kind of like dissect this and think through it. What, how would you do it? But it is affirm who you are. And, and sometimes even with this, I'll throw in, you know, Satan, get behind me because I'm a new creation in Christ. And so sometimes that plays into the picture too. But I hope this helps you. I hope it gives freedom to, to many of us. But don't go away just thinking, oh, that's interesting. Go away and think about this. Go away and ponder this and pray about it and do it the next time there's a temptation that, that you find yourself in. Most of the times, the temptations are things that surprise us. I, I'm surprised. What, what's happening right now? Oh, I'm being tempted to do this or that or whatever. But uh, be alert. Be aware so you don't walk up to the wrong buggy and, and uh, <laughs> cause terror in some young mother's heart. Okay. 
All right, would you stand with me? And prayer teams, please make your way down to the front. Maybe you want prayer for something today. We'd love to pray for you. Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that your wisdom goes so far beyond anything we could comprehend or conceive. Thank you, Lord, that you said, I'm going to take out that stony heart and I'm going to put a new living heart in you. Thank you for the living heart through Jesus. Thank you that you've given us a way to renew our minds with your truth and with the Holy Spirit taking your truth and rearranging the way our brains function and the way our thought patterns flow. I pray freedom, Lord, from nagging thoughts. I pray freedom today from um, repetitive thoughts, negative repetitive thoughts. I pray for freedom for that today and ongoing freedom to walk it out, not just to experience it today, but to walk it out by affirming who we are and what you've made us to be in Jesus' name. Amen.